and welcome to Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond, hosted by Mark Kaler. My name is Penka Jane, podcast deckhand and longtime listener. We'd thank you to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Here's today's catch. Hello guys, and welcome back to another installment of Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond. I am your host, Mark Kaler. Uh, today we're not on the Gale, sitting in wonderful Ballard, uh, Washington. We are actually in Rockport, Massachusetts. We've come out uh, east. Uh, some of these guys out on, on the east side want to have their chance to tell their story. And today our first one is going to be Captain Jeff Klein. Jeff, how are you today? Very good. Very good. Well, well, let's start into it with uh, where were you born and what was the first calling to the water? I was born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, the water's just always called to me. Uh, when I was growing up, I lived a couple blocks from the ocean um, as I've moved around the country. Um, I just always lived near the ocean. So uh, I I just I always had that calling to be on the ocean. Now, um, in, pr- prior to the interview, I actually overheard you talking to Jesse about uh, how, you, how you got your first commercial fishing experience. You were actually living on a boat out in Ballard, Washington. Yes, I was. Um, that was right before I went to Alaska. But my first fishing experience was uh, I was living on Cape Cod and um, I just got laid off from a painting job. I was sitting on the docks on the Ocean Street docks right there in Hyannis. And a um, guy comes up to me and asks me if uh, I want to help him offload his boat. Started doing that uh, three, four times a week with him and talked the crew into taking me out fishing. And been fishing ever since. What what was the species? Uh, mussels. Okay. Um, it, it was an interesting fishery, but uh, it was also one of the best fisheries I've ever been involved with. Um, I mean, it was just day trips. It was good money. It was uh, it was hard work. What fishing and hard work. We've never had anybody on that uh, that fish mussels. Can you explain the entire process for us? Uh, we were using a modified scallop rake. Um, we just lightened it up so it didn't dig as hard. And, um, I mean, it's basically like scalloping. We were just in shallow waters catching mussels um, off the shoals. It was uh, pretty simple, you know. And then we would put it through a, a spinner wheel, and uh, it would break up the clumps, and we'd go into a chute, and we'd bag it up and stack them. It was, uh, it was a good operation. Uh, I worked for a company called Blue Gold Sea Farms. And to tell you the truth, I don't even know if they're still around. Uh, but when I worked for them, they, were, they treated me good. They took care of me. Um, the money was there. You know, and that uh, seems to be the main thing for most fishermen is the money there. Mm-hmm. How big of a boat was it? Um, I want to say it was like 78. Uh, the name of the boat was the Isle of Shoals. Uh, old wooden boat. Um, used to be a swordfish boat. So it had a high mass, and uh, the pulpit wasn't there, but uh, the high mass was still there. And I was only 15 when I started on that boat. And so I used to climb up the mast and go sit up in the steering control. And um, it was awesome because we were fishing Nantucket Sound. You know, and this is back in the day when there wasn't so many recreational boats out there. There You know, the commercial fleets pretty much dwindled in Nantucket Sound. Um, I was just fishing down there recently, and um, I was always happy when I saw one of the commercial boats out fishing, you know, to see that the legacy is still carrying on down there. Mm-hmm. Where did you go from there? 
Uh, for how long did you do that even? Uh, I was doing, I did that for about a year and a half. And uh, from there, I went into the Army for a couple of years. And uh, when I got out, I went right back into fishing. You know, it's uh, what I always wanted to do. And um, I started dragging, I started scalloping. I started uh, doing every fishery I could possibly get my hands on. Uh, for every species I could possibly get my hands on. So let's let's slow the conversation down a little bit, and start with the first fishery you got you started doing after the army. I mean, I want to let's dive into okay you know, every species, but what species and what were you doing? I started scalloping on a boat called the Little Infant, uh, right out of Hyannis, uh, same port. Um, I wasn't on that boat long. I, I want to say I only did three or four trips on it, and then I went dragging. Um, you know, there was the Lady Helen, there was the Rosalie R, the Carol R2. Um, I kind of jumped around on boats. You know, it seems to be the one thing in my career that I'm really good at is uh, jumping boat to boat to boat to boat. And whoever needs me, that's where I'm going. Um, but it all comes down to who's going to pay me the most. Mm -hmm. You know, is the money going to be there? And I'm not really about money, but at the end of the day, I want to get paid. Mm -hmm. And dragon. So, what what were you? What species were you dragging for? Uh, sea bass, gop, fluke, flounder, uh, squid. Uh, basically, a mix of everything. When you're dragging, you're gonna get you know five, eight, ten species in a trip. So, that was my beginning. I like dragon, but at the same time, it's a it's not my favorite form of fishing. So how are you handling five different species at once? Just sorting them. And doing what with them? Sorting them into different baskets and uh, each basket weighs approximately 75 pounds depending on species and um, from there we'd go down you know we had to keep a running tally of what we caught. And no matter what species you're, you always got a running tally of what you have on board. So uh, from there we put it in the ice hold and uh, ice them down real good until we hit land to offload. Mm -hmm. You know, so, but you definitely separate everything. Everything gets separated. Um, so, you, you know, if you five species, you got five different pens down in the fish hold okay. um, that you're working on. Was there one species that was more profitable than the other, I'm sure? Squid. Squid's always been the most profitable when I'm dragging. Mm -hmm. You know, um, fluke was always a good one. Um, you know, it, it just depends. Depends on the market as well. You know, one day uh, scup will be a nickel a pound, and the next day it will be 75 cents a pound. Wow. Um, you know, it's just all on the market, how much product's on the market, um, and whether they can even get rid of it. Some guys can't get rid of stuff. Uh, I find that real prevalent in the tuna industry. Some guys ship directly to Japan. Every single fish goes to Japan. Other guys keep 90% of their fish domestic because they have the domestic market. And, um, you know, it's all where where it goes and who's buying it and, you know, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. End of the day, who's paying? It's all that money. That's yeah. right. Okay, so hopped around on, on a, several boats, dragon, doing some scalloping. Where did you go from there? Uh, went out west. Um, that's when I was living on a houseboat in Fisherman's Terminal. Ended up uh, going up to Alaska from there. I figured I was just going up for the summer and uh, it just snowballed and I was up there for seven years. Um, 
My first job was on a little 58-foot long liner called the Sea Spider. And uh, it was we were catching halibut, did the 24-hour halibut opener, and then did a 10-day black cod opener. And uh, from there, we went and did, uh, I forget what we did after that. But I know we finished up the, sea, the season out in Dutch Harbor catching uh, gray cod, Pacific cod, mm -hmm. for the for the crab boats. And, uh, you know, once you're in Alaska, there's so much work, it's just not even funny. Um, you do not have to worry about work once you get up there. That was my favorite part of it. I mean, I'd have to, I'd tell no one that I quit a boat and I'd go to the hotel and just put my bags down and the phone would ring. And you'd be like, what? Nobody even knows I'm here. There's work up there. Mm -hmm. What did you do after that 58 footer? Um, I did that for a year and a half and then I went uh, crabbing. Which boat? I was uh, on a boat called the Shilikoff. We have a boat? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, 180 foot, dual cranes. It was, uh, it was awesome. Uh, that boat was just flat out awesome. Now, what year would that have been? Eighty-nine's mm, when I went up there. Well, beginning spring of ninety, and um, so ninety-one to ninety-seven. Crab was still happening. Yeah, crab was really happening because uh, I want to say ninety-two, the winter of ninety-two, we had the largest opelio quota ever, and fishing game actually had to back it down from what they had originally wanted because of some treaty, I forget the reasoning behind that, but I know they had to back the Opelia quota back down. Yeah, it was a wide open fishery up there. You know, derby openers, 24 hour openers, and uh, I loved it. There, there was money to be made. You know, you got on with a good crew and you worked and you worked hard, you made money. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, my first year crabbing, that was a whole new experience for me. But that's right up my alley. I loved uh, long lining hooks and pots. Those are what I love to do. Long lining, crabbing, lobstering, uh, dungeness crab. Loved it all. The only uh, fishery I really didn't touch up in Alaska was uh, brown kings. I just, um, at the time, I didn't, I wasn't comfortable long lining the big pots. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I always stayed away from it. You know, and even on the East Coast, I stayed away from the, the cable long lines. I just, uh, just one of those preference things. Mm -hmm. But I have done a little down in the uh, Gulf of Mexico, but uh, I prefer not to. Mm -hmm. So up in Alaska, seven years? Yeah. Yeah. So the Chillicoff, was that the, the only other boat you worked on? Oh, no, I worked on uh, 100 boats up there. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, Back to that where needed? Uh, yeah, you know, it was uh, easy to find work, and, uh, you know, you're under contract. So after three months, you're pretty much, you know, if the boat doesn't want to offer you another contract, you move on. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some boats, you look at your check at the end of three months, and you go, why did I do that? So you move on. Um, yeah, I was on a ton of boats up in Alaska. Um, even when I left Alaska, it's one of the prevalent things in my life is I'm good at getting on boats and, uh, you know, I'm a great filling guy. I'm a great transit guy. Um, it's what I do now. So then you came back to the East Coast? Um, I, when I left Alaska, I went down to uh, Fort Lauderdale to see my father, who still lives down there. And um, from there, I 
jumped on a little long liner that was swordfish tuna fishing and we were fishing out of uh, Stock Island in the Keys uh, just one key up from Key West um, from there I, we were fishing down in the Caribbean fishing the Windward Pass uh, the Yucatan Pass I don't even know if the, they're allowed to go down there anymore you know I've heard stories they weren't but uh, it was a great fishery like I said hooks and pots what I enjoyed uh, the long line for swords and tuna that didn't get no better than that big fish every day a um, lot of fun um, saw stuff that I never thought I'd ever see you know big sharks big big everything everything's big mm -hmm. um, see a ton of turtles ton of uh, whales porpoises um, it's it gets a little hairy though at times uh, you know, especially going by the southern Bahamas and you see the drug boats down there you see the Cuban refugees trying to get to America and there's really not much you can do for them uh, it's tough it's a tough situation when when you know the refugees you want to help them but the minute you try to help them now you got to call the Coast Guard they're gonna make you sit on the people and they're still not going to get into the US um, so we used to just uh, wish them luck, toss them a couple bottles of water, and uh, whatever we could. Mm -hmm. But, you know, once they set foot on the boat, they're not getting to America. Because then you, get your, your, you have to call the Coast Guard and report it? Oh, absolutely. You know, we're getting ten times the trouble they're going to get in. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, regulations on, the, on U.S. citizens are uh, quite unique when it comes to refugees. Uh, you really can't, you can't show support for them. You can, but you can't, you know. Um, I wanted them, I, I wanted them to get to America, but you can't help. But you see it all down there. You see it all. Um, yeah, you see, you see the drug runners, you see piles of black plastic bags floating in the water, and you just look the other way and, and continue on. Mm-hmm. Have you had some pretty good experiences at sea? Yeah, all, all my experiences are good at sea. What makes it? The people I'm around, the fishing, um, you know, just the, the brotherhood of fishing. And um, I've had a, a ton of women that I've worked with over the years and they fit right in and, you know, they work just as hard as the guys and it's, uh, it's family. You're just out there to make a living and have a good time and make money. You know, that's uh, what it's all about. Mm -hmm. You know, now I uh, I run charter boats for the most part, and uh, it's the same thing. I get guys on there that uh, you know fish once, twice a year on the ocean. They look forward to the trips as much as I look forward to the trips. Um, you know, so you go out, you always have a good time. You enjoy the day, enjoy the fish, and at the end of the day, you make a little money. What about some uh, some of the scarier times? I mean, all these years at sea. Uh, do you remember the first time that you were actually scared? I've only actually been scared once in my life, and uh, that was on the Shellacock. We were in 45, 50 foot seas, and um, they put me on watch. And I was a young kid. I was in my 20s. I'd never seen nothing like that big. It's the only time I've been scared, especially driving the boat, um, having that responsibility, you know, 
now, you know, my entire career, when something bad would happen, you don't get scared. You figure out the problem and you deal with it. That's what makes a good fisherman. The minute you get let fear get involved, it's it's all over. And even that night on the Shilikov, you know, you you adjust, you adapt, you overcome the situation, and you carry on. Um, but that's the only time I've really really been scared on on water. And I was happy when my watch was over from that. Um, you know, I I tend to like to focus on the good stuff rather than the bad stuff. You got some good stuff for us then? Oh, every day's good stuff. Uh, you know, I just did two trips for a friend of mine out uh, tuna chartering. You know, they were two two awesome days. Uh, I spent the summer down on Cape Cod working for uh, Bounty Hunter Charters. And um, I, I had a great summer. I met a thousand people down there. And um, I think I ran somewhere close to 70 charters just on the Cape this year. And had a blast, absolute blast. I had, I had guys that were running other charter boats really help me along and, uh, you know, look over me, and make sure that I'm safe. And, you know, it's just, um, yeah, I had an absolute blast. I caught world-class fluke all summer, world-class sea bass. Um, my last two days on the water were uh, just world-class tuna fishing. And um, I couldn't, can't ask for anything more. And, uh, you know, I've been asked to stretch out a story, and uh, I think I got one or two here that might might fit that profile. Um, when I uh, got off the long line or that uh, was up in Block Island, I went to Narragansett, and uh, I knew one person there, and, you know, didn't I don't have a fear that I can't find work. If there's an ocean, I can find work. So... Um, I hung out for a couple of days and uh, one of the local lobster companies hired me. At the time they had three boats and I, I'd never really been lobster and so, you know, but I'm a big boy so I can handle some hard work. And they threw me on board a boat called the Mr. Marco, and uh, which turned out to be one of the harder boats to, to work on. You know, it was just a snappy, rolly boat. and. Um, we used to go in all weather. I mean, we really didn't care about any any kind of weather. You went, you went, you made money. So um, we started, the captain at the time, his name was Scott. And um, like I said, I didn't really know anybody down there and became friends with the crew. And, you know, um, the thing I hated about that boat is we leave in the afternoon, steam all night, and most of the time, you know, you're, you can't sleep, you know, um, and you show up the next morning and you go to work. And we used to haul for 30 hours straight and um, then get about a four-hour nap and everybody does a one-hour watch because you're offshore. And um, the second day you haul for at least 12, 15 hours, get another four-hour nap, and then finish up on the third day. Um the boat was a tough boat. It was a beautiful boat. The, the maintenance on it was awesome. The owners were awesome. It was just a tough boat. Um, the way she rode? Yeah, she was snappy. Uh, you really had to have your footing down when, when you did ride on her. Um, I have a lot of fond memories of that boat, though. 
You know, I've worked their other boats through the years, but uh, that boat always held special to me. She's still around? Yes, yes. They still fish her out of uh, Narragansett, Rhode Island. Um, the Campanellas are who own that. And, uh, you know, through the years, uh, they've uh, they've struggled. You know, the, the lobster hadn't been as good down south of Cape Cod as, uh, as it was when I was on the boat. You know, but I was also on the boat when there was no pot limits and uh, the size limits were within reason. Now you have uh, gear limits on everything. I think um, I think overall, out of all the regulations, those are the ones that hurt the fishermen the most. And when you start restricting how many pots they can fish, how big of a net, how long of a gill net, um, all this really plays into the, the end game is how much money are you going to be able to make. Mm -hmm. um, and I've watched the deterioration of the fisheries because of that. You mentioned that a little while ago, actually. You said um, that even today you, you feel a special pride when you see a commercial boat leaving because there's not near as many of them doing it. Correct. Um, you know, the regulations have just put a squeeze on everybody, you know, uh, it's kind of sad, you know, we've been protecting the ocean for my entire career, which is about 35 years on the water. And um, now all of a sudden they want to put windmills up in the same areas that I've been protecting, that I wasn't allowed to go fish in because we wanted to protect them. And um, you know, I find that really hard to, to deal with, especially when we have a 200 mile economic zone and now foreign companies are coming in to build these windmills. They say they're going to hire Americans, but in reality, they're not. They're going to have one or two token Americans, and that's it. Um, it's real shameful what this government's doing to its own people. Uh, explain to me what the, what's happening with the windmills. I mean, I understand what they're built for, but um, for our listeners, which you, you know, we have a lot of listeners back west, what... What are you dealing with that we haven't even experienced or heard of over there yet? Uh, okay. Now, I was, um, I was still in Rhode Island when they started first talking about the five windmills that are off of Block Island. Those got built, and, you know, did it have, was it bad for the industry? Five windmills is not going to be bad. But when you put 5,000 of them on the ocean, now we have issues. It's going to change stuff. The wind patterns, the ocean current patterns. The way the fish are, you can't put electricity in water and not expect to have negative results. Now, as I've, as I've moved from Rhode Island to the Cape and up into Gloucester area, and I've fished all these waters for years and years and years. Well, this summer I saw the windmill uh, boat out here doing sonic testing. They're doing sonic testing on, on Southern Jeffrey's Ledge. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, I find it just hard to fathom that fishermen are still fighting this. You know, I remember when the fishermen fought off the oil companies from drilling on George's banks, and it was the fishermen that stopped it, nobody else. Now they have eliminated the fishermen, so we can't fight this. We need people. We need the average American citizen to understand what they're doing to the fishermen, and that is destroying livelihoods. We need to keep these windmills off the ocean. 
We do not have enough studies. You look at what the Europeans have done. And I have friends over in Europe that have dealt with the, the windmills. And they all say bad things about them. I, I have never, maybe I'm super uninformed, I had never even heard of them putting windmills in the ocean. Oh, they want to put windmills from Virginia all the way to Maine. And it's bad. It's, it's not looking good. Rather for, than on land. Rather than on land, because on land they kill birds that people can go find. They, they are loud. I have three in Gloucester. Go stand up there on a windy day. You'll see how loud they are. So the theory is, is put them on the ocean, out of sight, out of mind. They're going to kill tens of millions of seabirds that nobody's going to be able to record because they're going to float away. Um, it, it's real detrimental to the environment. Any environmental group that's for these is not there for the environment. Um, one of my favorite sayings is environmentalists aren't good for the environment. And I hold that true today. Um, I care more about the oceans and what goes on in the oceans uh, more than most people do. I'm out there every day. I see the whales. I see the porpoises. I see the sea life. I've made my living off of catching fish. Um, you know, one of my favorite sayings is, somebody please tell me how many fish are in the ocean. Because I'll tell you, there's more fish in the ocean than have ever been caught. I love that saying. Because... It's a renewable resource. Don't believe what the government puts out. We have a major problem with sea bass right now. Um, and this is, I just started dealing with sea bass once again this year. I hadn't dealt with it for a lot of years, so I was kind of out of the loop. But I have listened to my friends from New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Southern Massachusetts, all say the same thing. They're overpopulating. I saw it firsthand this year. I had a 5.7 pound sea bass. That is a monster of a sea bass. I couldn't believe it. When you're allowed to grow them that big, there's billions of them. Um, they don't get that big because they're the only ones in the ocean. So, you know, I, I, like I said, I try to be environmentally conscious, but I'm on the, I'm on the water, I can't fight these things. You seem passionate about it. I love what I do. You know, um, most of the guys that are around me know that this is what I love to do. I don't want to do anything else. I don't want to go tugboating. I don't want to get a land job. I don't care what the money is. I want to be on the water. That's all I want to do. I want to go see the fish. I want to, you know, it sustained my lifestyle. Um, I have a much freer lifestyle because I'm a fisherman. If I want to take a month off, I take a month off. If I don't want to go to work this week, I don't go to work this week. You know, but if I want to find work and I want to work every day, I can do that just as well. Um, I, I like the lifestyle. I like uh, the fact that I am intertwined with the, the environment. You know, I have uh, friends that are park rangers and they feel the same way about being on land. They feel intertwined to their surroundings. It's a, it's a very unique situation to be in when you care so much about what you're doing. And 90% of the people on this planet could care less of what they do for work. They're not happy. It's not a fulfilling job. Um, me, I've gotten everything I've ever wanted out of fishing. 
You know, it provides good living. Uh, it's uh, sustainable. I eat, sea, I eat fresh seafood three, four days a week. Can't get any fresher than catching it yourself. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it doesn't get any better than that. But like uh, back to the windmills, it's really gonna hurt the the. It's gonna hurt everything. You know, um, all you really got to do is look at the European studies, and they're doing the same thing over here. You take away the subsidies for these windmills, and they will not exist. You know, so our taxpayers' money is going to pay for these things. Who's going to remove them? I guarantee you, you start looking at these contracts these wind companies are, are signing, there's no removal clause in it. So now we're stuck with a junkyard on the ocean. Saltwater eats everything. Anybody that's been around saltwater will tell you, saltwater eats everything. So don't expect these windmills to last. They say 10 years, I give it five. They say five years, I say they're done in two and a half. Um, you know, I did last, last summer, or actually last winter, they, one of the windmills in Gloucester, we have three here, was, had been broken for some time. They had a crane up there and they dismantled the whole thing and then they put it all back together. Well, that crane was there for, I want to say, 15 weeks. At what cost? You know, cranes aren't cheap. The manpower to run those cranes aren't cheap. They're 15 weeks. Now, great, I love seeing the windmill work. I'm glad we're getting power out of that windmill, but at what cost? Or is that windmill ever going to recoup the cost of that? Just that one incident with the crane. Doesn't need, you know, not even all the equipment that they had to pull the generator down, put a new generator in, you know, um, not even the cost of all that, just the crane. I, you know, I'm kind of hoping one of the callers calls in and asks and has numbers for me because I don't have time to track all these numbers. I deal with fisheries meetings all the time and I miss a ton of them because I'm out fishing. This is how the government gets the control of the fishermen. They pick the most beautiful bluebird days and they hold them eating. Mm -hmm. And they know all the fishermen are out on the water and that's just the way it is. And then they're just passing laws and rules and you know, um, I, I would like to say one thing. There are a lot of people that uh, handle the fisheries regulations for the fishermen, um, namely Bonnie Brady. Um, she's been a, a godsend for years now. Um, she really does a lot for the fishermen, whether you know her name or not. She's uh, definitely done a lot for the East Coast fishermen. Um, on the West Coast, I know there's a handful of people they have a tighter grip on the West Coast. I don't know why, but they just do. And uh, I think part of it is that's where these environmental groups live. They're stretched out from Washington through California, through Oregon. And um, you know, I feel bad for the West Coast fishermen. They're under constant restraints. Um, not that the East Coast is much better. We're under constant restraints over here too. Mm-hmm. This is where I generally ask, would you change anything about the choices you've made in fishing? But it's clearly, clearly you probably wouldn't. I'm sure there's some small things that I would have liked to have changed, but um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty rock solid on my life choices being a fisherman. Um, I couldn't have met a better class of people. They're pretty much down to earth, good people. 
trying to raise families and uh, enjoy life. And that's what that's what life's supposed to be. Enjoy your life. If you don't like what you're doing, quit. Go find something else to do. Um, there are other industries to get into that are more enjoyable. I mean, I, I had a friend of mine ask me about going into tug, tug business. It's just not for me. You know, he was talking six weeks on, six weeks off. That's the part I don't like. I've spent my whole entire life away from my house. I paid for apartments for a year that I only stepped foot in maybe a dozen times. Um, I enjoy being home now every night. I enjoy having a home that I can be happy to go home to. You know, but as far as the industry goes, I couldn't ask for a better life. It's a, it's a great lifestyle. It's not for everybody. It's a hard lifestyle. You got to be prepared to work. On the West Coast, it seems like our 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 fishing fleet is getting older, and uh, and not as many young guys in the game. Is it? How is it over here? Oh, same thing as over here. You know, back in the seventies, I want to say it was the seventies. Uh, the New England fleet was all wooden boats, all Eastern rig boats, and um, the government came and gave grants to the fishermen to build bigger and better boats. Now, this was the downside to the fishing industry because now guys went and built, you know, instead of having a 40-foot wooden boat, <clears throat> they built 80-foot steel boats. The military, the U.S. military, started declassifying certain things. VHF radio was introduced to the fishermen in World War II. You know, the radar, the sonar, and all this stuff. Now we have technology on the boats to go kill fish. That was a big mistake on the government side. You know, they. I wish the commercial fishermen would get back to family-owned businesses. It'll never happen. It's just the way I wish it would go. Um, the government prefers big companies to own multiple boats because they feel it's easier to control. But then you get guys like Carlos Raphael that play the system. He owns a lot of boats, and he played the system, and he played it well. And, um, you know, and if they didn't catch him, he'd still be doing the same thing. You know, and even now they're trying to put 100% observer coverage on the draggers out here. And what we need is 100% dockside coverage. That's going to be more beneficial. Stop the guys like Carlos Raphael. You know, there's there's only a handful of them. Everyone knows who they are. The government's never going to touch them because for one reason or another, they're just never going to get touched. And I don't know who Carlos Rafael didn't pay off or didn't kiss ass to, but that's obviously how they caught him. He didn't pay somebody off, didn't kiss the right ass, didn't do something. Um, you know, and that's just one example. I've met guys that I'm very happy that I've never had to work for in this industry. <laughs> um, you know, and there's, a, there's a lot of them. There's at least one or two in every port. Um, you know, I'm not going to drop names. Uh, Carlos Rafael was the only name I'm really going to drop there, only because we all know his story. We all know how corrupt he was. Um, and he had police officers on his payroll to look the other way. To You know, everyone knew what happened there. But there's, there's always one or two in every port, and uh, usually once you get involved, you'll, uh, you'll understand. I'm glad I've never needed to work for these people, 
because the last thing I want to do is uh, put money into corrupt hands. My favorite work for families. Work. Speaking, speaking of that, how do you see, or what would you suggest, uh, the young folks that are looking to get into the industry? You know, we're born into it. Yeah, you know, I wasn't born into fishing at all. I've never had any family members in fishing. Um, you know, I always had that work ethic. For me, I always liked working for families, family-owned boats. You always get treated better. You always get paid just a little bit better. Um, you know, when you work for a company, for a corporation, you're just a number. You're a statistic. You get hurt, you're out the door, you're down the road. With a family, you get hurt, the wife's calling you, the, the father, your captain's calling you to make sure you're okay, make sure you're fine. Um, you don't see that in the corporate world. So family's what I always tried for. Um, it's getting a little bit harder and harder to find, I know, but they're still out there. You know, I will say they are still out there. It's good to see that, too. It's good to see that. Yeah, you know, um, I don't see a whole lot of new blood coming into the industry. And that's a big concern uh, across both coasts. I don't care where you're at. We don't see the young blood getting in, um, and rightfully so. You know, who wants to get into an industry where you're so regulated that you're already, from the onset, you're only going to make X amount of dollars. You know, I mean, there, there's no possible way to make any more because of the regulations in place. Um, I was up in Alaska for the IFQs, for the halibut, for the original onset of IFQs and I watched my crew share go from um, 15 17% being a deck boss engineer down to I couldn't find anything for seven six seven eight percent being the deck boss engineer I saw a problem with that and from the day one of the IFQs I told myself I'll never work under that system ever um, and I really haven't I, you know, not to my recollection, have I ever worked under IFQs or catch shares or whatever you want to call it on the East Coast. I have worked under the Days at Sea program. I thought it was a workable program. Not the best in the world, but it was workable. It was working. Um, and then they went to catch shares, which is basically IFQs. It puts the product in the hands of the few. And, um, you know, I was kind of sad to see IFQs in Alaska go that way. Because it, it took a lot, it put a lot of fishermen out of business. Overnight. Overnight. You know, um, it, yeah, I just thought it was bad. And I tried to fight the IFQs. Um, I just wanted my crew share. I was on a qualifying boat. I just wanted my crew share. I didn't want anything else. So I wasn't greedy. Judge threw that out. You're a crew member. You're hired on captain. You get nothing. You have no vested interests in the boat. And, uh, you know, I still feel the same way. I have a lot of vested interests in the boat. I'm the guy down there changing the hydraulic hoses, painting the boat, changing the zincs, changing motors out, changing transmissions out, fueling it up every day, keeping the maintenance going. You know, I'm the guy that's out there working, keeping the, that boat running. 
And uh, for me to be kicked out of the industry like that, there's a lot of sore sore feelings. There. Sounds, sounds like it. Sounds like it. All right, Jeff, is there anything else you'd like to, to say before we wrap this up? Uh, yeah, catch them up. Be safe. You know, um, you got a lot of people that uh, love seafood and, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. Cool. All right, well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. All right, guys, it's been another installment of Galley Stories, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Galley Stories. We hope you like what the net brought in. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Whether you like it or not, we're not fishing for compliments. Look us up on Facebook and Twitter, too, and reach out to us at galleystories at gmail.com.